The 2018 midterms were among the most anticipated in recent memory. Widely perceived as a referendum on President Donald Trump's leadership, the election also saw voters cast ballots in dozens of high-profile state and local races with major implications for American education. But what role did education play in voters' decisions at the polls? And what will be the consequences of those decisions for the direction of education policy going forward? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Charles Barone, Chief Policy Officer at Democrats for Education Reform and author of the new article, The Voters Have Spoken, But What Did They Say About Education?, which is available now at educationnext.org. Charles, Charlie, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Hey, Marty, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for taking the time for a conversation here. So I want to start out by asking about sort of the general reflections you offered on the election. Uh, I noticed that in the discourse about the midterms generally, one of the dominant themes was the idea that, as Julia Azaria Vox wrote, the narrative from the 2018 midterms is that there is no narrative. The Democrats took back the House, but the Republicans extended their majority in the Senate. A blue wave clearly came, but it seems to have crashed on a heavily fortified Republican beach. And as we turn to your piece on education, you similarly argue that we should resist the temptation to draw sweeping conclusions. Why is that the case? I think that's particularly true for education. It, it does seem like a blue wave drove uh, you know, turnover in a bunch of House districts, U.S. House of Representatives districts um, that have been held by Republicans. But when you look across the country, there are other dynamics at work. In education, we always want to see politicians put our issue at the top of their agendas. And, you know, we love seeing that from voters, too. It's just not always the case that policymakers and voters put education at the top of their agendas. And all the polling this year indicated that only for Democrats with education, even in the top three issues that they thought were important in the polling that led up to the election, and not even in every poll for Democrats. And it was not in the top three, clearly in any of the polls I saw that also broke out results for independents and Republicans. So there's little reason to think that voters were casting their ballots in large part based on education. And maybe that's why you're critical of the notion that the election results were a repudiation of the hard edged definitions of school reform, as one of our executive editors, Rick Hess, put it. Um, you know, Hess claimed that voters showed and policymakers showed a massive distaste for a lot of where school reform has brought us. Make the argument against that position. I think Rick cherry-picked the results and pointed to places like New Mexico, where Michelle Lewin Grisham was elected governor, uh, you know, following a, a Republican governorship that saw some serious education reforms, including an expansion of school choice and a fairly rigorous teacher evaluation system. Uh, Grisham did uh, have as part of her platform the uh, repeal of that teacher evaluation system, and Rick singled that out as an example of uh, voters repudiating that policy. Uh, that's not a policy that Rick has traditionally embraced. I don't think it's as radical as Rick portrays it to be, but you can look to other states where uh, there are also very robust teacher evaluation systems where it was a non-issue in the election. Uh, Colorado 
Colorado is one where they elected governor to the governorship Jared Polis, who was previously a congressman and had teacher evaluation policy as one of his top issues, recommending systems very much like the one in New Mexico. In D.C., which has the most consequential teacher evaluation system in the country, that was a non-issue in the school board elections that took place on November 6th. In New York, you had Governor Cuomo get elected, who uh, wasn't involved in crafting the state's teacher evaluation system, but did defend it once he became a governor. And he was challenged on the issue of education during the primaries, and, you know, he he won handily in both the primary and the general election. So uh, the point I made in the piece is for every example you could give of an instance where voters might have been rejecting a particular policy, there's at least one other instance that, that indicates the opposite. But to push back just a little bit on that point, uh, what if we broaden the question to look not just at who won, but uh, at the positions that candidates took in their campaigns? You know, Did the uh, reformers like Paulus, like Cuomo, really emphasize their education reform bona fides or did they instead play them down? And to the extent that they played them down, you know, can we learn from that about the uh, sense that they might have had that those uh, were not winning issues for them? I don't see in any case that people ran from them. I think, you know, one thing you have to acknowledge is that these are all people who are trying to get elected. So if they're looking at the polling results, and they're in a situation where they've got a cobbled together a majority across various voter groups, which in a lot of instances had, in most instances, had to include independents, and in some instances even had to include Republicans, given the fact that Republican votes were in play this election due to anti-Trump sentiment. It's not surprising that they didn't emphasize education. Um, in a lot of cases. And I think to the extent they did, they tended to emphasize the issues that politicians always emphasize in education. Um, Expansion of pre-K and full-day kindergarten was a big issue for Jared Polis in Colorado. They don't have that. So that was a priority for him. It's popular with voters. It's something that they really want to do in that state. It's a unifying issue. You know, Cuomo emphasized other issues. We really haven't been in a cycle in New York where education is a top um, issue that the legislature is grappling with in any big way. But he didn't run from his record either. So I'm not sure that politicians emphasize education in this election any less than politicians have in previous elections. Um, I I do think you saw some Democrats back off of some reform policies. We'll see what that means in terms of how how they govern, which are two different things. And I think we saw some Republicans begin to embrace uh, increases in education spending because that has clearly been an issue for voters uh, with regard to the teacher strikes or the threatened teacher strikes that took place in some cases and also in instances like Kansas, where education funding has been a big issue uh, over the last several years, particularly you know in response to cutbacks by the Republican administration there. 
Sam Brown back, uh, restored a little bit uh, over time, but but still it's a big issue in Kansas and there's a court case. And so um, I think the point that I'm trying to make is you have to look at the ecology of each state and each locality in terms of the history uh, of the issue, what's happening recently, uh, any dynamics around reform policies at any end of the spectrum and come to conclusions that are, you know, pretty much uh, based on what you see in a particular locality or state. And I, that seems to me very different from place to place. So let's talk about the issue of charter schools. Um, one of the outcomes that was noteworthy there was the election of Gavin Newsom as governor of California. He had promised a moratorium on charter expansion in one of the states that's really been the uh, at the epicenter of the charter school movement. Um, are there any general lessons from what happened there, both in the general election and in the primary running up to it? And in particular, has it become harder to be a charter supporter as a Democrat? Not for us. I mean, not for us at Democrats for Education Reform. We're pretty um, solid in our belief that charters offer the opportunity to provide a higher quality education. They don't guarantee it. We see performance variation across different states. In some states, uh, charters outperform the traditional sector. In other states, it's the opposite. But particularly in the states where we have chapters, Colorado, New York, Massachusetts, uh, the sector is pretty high performing. I do think it's becoming uh, a, a, a more divisive issue for Democrats. And I think what you have in the party is a split between uh, white affluent voters who are, in looking at the polls and speaking to people, seem to be concerned that uh, charters shift money away from traditional public schools, which is a little ironic because it's those very white and affluent voters who are able to move and take their dollars with them wherever they go. Uh, and choose districts where the cost of living is higher and, and there are better schools. And then on the other side, also a Democratic constituency, uh, low-income voters, black and brown voters who do embrace uh, public charter schools because, you know, prior to the existence of the charter sector, they had to go to the school that the district told them to go to. Uh, and now they have options, which in a lot of cases are much better uh, than the schools to which their child would have been assigned previously. So, so it, it's, it, is, it is a tricky issue within the party. So let's turn to the implications of the results for education politics and policy going forward. Even if education wasn't a major factor in the outcomes at the federal level in particular, the outcomes still matter for who's in control and presumably what happens going forward. And starting at that federal level, the big change, of course, is that Democrats will be holding the gavels in the House of Representatives. What implications will that have going forward? Democrats are, and this is an understatement, very unhappy with Secretary Betsy DeVos. So one thing we will certainly see is greater scrutiny from Democrats of her policies, forums for criticizing her policies hearings, maybe. Um, and, you know, there are a number of different committees that, that could do that. The primary uh, committee in the House would be the Education and Workforce Committee. Interestingly there, 
uh, immediately after the election, the uh, chairman to be Bobby Scott, uh, who's a African American uh, representative from the Richmond, Virginia area, signaled that he did not plan to hold a bunch of hearings and at least wanted to start off with um, trying to ask questions and 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 probe uh, the administration's policies via letters and meetings. You know, a more diplomatic and deliberate approach, which um, for people who know him closely is an, and has always been his style. So that's one thing we'll definitely see. I think um, she's left herself open on some things, uh, on civil rights issues, uh, like exclusionary discipline. Uh, I think there's a lot of rancor in the party about her positions and uh, we'll want scrutiny of that. Also, um, she's got some pretty hard to defend policies around predatory for-profit uh, career colleges. And so I think uh, folks will rightly come at her on that. I mean, she's, there doesn't seem to be a practice by a, a private career, career college that she, um, that, that causes her to have any concern or a problem. She's left herself open there. You know, the, the broader issue is open to debate in terms of where you draw the line, but she just hasn't drawn any lines. So I think she's left herself very open to legit criticism on that issue. Ramped up oversight of the department, whether it occurs via letters and meetings or public hearings, seems like a, a safe prediction. And I think it's also fair to say that regardless of who won the election and gained control of the House, we weren't going to see a lot of action with respect to K-12 education so soon in the wake of the Every Student Succeeds Act. To the extent that there is a legislative agenda in Congress right now on education, it's in the higher education space. What do you think the Democrats' success in gaining control of the House means for the prospects of legislation on higher education and the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act in particular? So uh, Bobby Scott, again, who is the chairman-to-be of the House Education and Workforce Committee, which I assume will be renamed yet again the House Education and Labor Committee. That's the uh, preferred Democratic uh, title for that committee, so they go back and forth always when the House changes control. For for him, for Bobby Scott, he has stated that reauthorization of the Higher Education Act is a priority for him. The Democrats introduced a bill in the summer called Aim Higher, um, which is a definitely a Democratic bill, very different than the bill that uh, Virginia Fox moved through the committee, who who was the is still the chairwoman, but will we'll, uh, now be ranking member on the committee. Very different from her bill, but also a bill that's more toward middle ground than some of the other proposals we've seen some from Democrats. So the bill that Bobby Scott and other Democratic leaders introduced, the Aim Higher Act, does not have uh, you know tuition-free college for everybody in it the way Bernie Sanders and uh, some other progressives have been uh, espousing. And he did signal, uh, again, right after the election in interviews, that his goal would be a bipartisan uh, reauthorization. Uh, just from my being up on the Hill a lot and talking to people, he has a cordial relationship with Virginia Fox, who's his Republican counterpart in the House. Uh, he's also worked with his Senate counterparts, 
Uh, Lamar Alexander from Tennessee, who will continue to be the chair of the Senate Education Committee, and Patty Murray, who will be the ranking member from Washington. Bobby Scott did work with both of them on the Every Student Succeeds Act uh, to produce bipartisan legislation. So you have three of what would be called the Big Four on Higher Education Act already having worked together on bipartisan legislation. And, you know, we'll see about Virginia Fox. Again, the, from everything I know informally, uh, she and Bobby Scott have a cordial relationship. She does not have a history, though, of, you know, a big bipartisan win on legislation, although they did uh, pass uh, a reauthorization of the Perkins Act, which is career and technical education. Pretty low-hanging fruit. That's a very low-stakes bill, but they at least have had that experience together, the four of them, her and Bobby Scott and uh, Patty Murray and Lamar Alexander in the Senate. Now, traditionally, when Congress has taken up major education bills like the Elementary and Secondary Education Act or the Higher Education Act, they tend to uh, pursue comprehensive reauthorizations. I wonder whether it might be possible in this case to identify certain areas of agreement within the Higher Education Act on issues like the simplification of financial aid and pursue those as standalone bills absent or outside of the context of a broader reauthorization. What do you think are the chances that we could see something like that develop? I don't know. Typically, uh, that's been a strategy deployed by the House of Representatives. You know, I'm talking, when I say typically, I mean in past years. And it's easier to do in the House of Representatives because you, know, you have tighter control of the legislative process. You pass a bill from committee, you bring it to the floor, you can restrict amendments and debate time and all those things. You could be much more efficient passing legislation. The Senate, as everybody knows, is not the most productive uh, legislative body when it comes to actually passing legislation. You know, unlimited debate, 60 votes to proceed, cloture, all the things people typically talk about in terms of the bottlenecks in the Senate to getting anything done. So. It could be a strategy for uh, House Democrats floating some consensus items uh, that they would, uh, you know, like to put out there to get momentum on reauthorizing the Higher Education Act. But as a legislative strategy, doing different, several different bills and expecting that the Senate would follow along and, you know, conference each bill separately, that's never happened to the best of my knowledge. I don't think it's out of the question that they might choose to do something small first. You know, they could choose to do one small thing first that they would try to get done. Um, there's a lot of interest in apprenticeships, for example, which is a higher ed issue, and micro-credentials and job training uh, better aligned with the needs of, uh, you know, local employers and industries. So, uh I could see something like that potentially being a small item that they would do and get out of the way, but not a series of bills uh, as a real legislative strategy for somehow getting, uh, you know, taking uh, the Higher Education Act piece by piece. Now, toward the end of your article, you look back a decade to the ill-fated Ed and 08 campaign. This was a grant-funded effort to make education issues central to the 2008 presidential election that was almost universally viewed as a failure. What lesson do you draw from that episode? Nothing's predetermined. You can never tell 
what's going to happen going forward. Uh, it, it's sort of up to education advocates and policymakers to decide the future. I mean, Ed in was considered a failure because politicians, the presidential candidates during the 2008 election, didn't talk about education, which is what Ed in wanted them to do. But in terms of doing something, uh, you know, Barack Obama came out of the gate in January, like the day of his inauguration, with a stimulus package that had $100 billion in education in it and then began to roll out his Race to the Top initiative, which people vary in terms of its effectiveness, but uh, it did spur, you know, dozens of states and localities to pass new policies. The other thing that strikes me is, you know, in education, we always want to be the center of attention, right? We always want people talking about our issues and, you know, our issues being primary, but that's not necessary for politicians to do something, you know? I mean, it's an important issue to us and to voters, but new policies happen all the time on all kinds of things, even things that are intersectional with education, you know? the. The, the child advocates, the folks who want reforms in the foster care system or in the, you know, uh, dealing with child uh, abuse and neglect, they don't expect to be the center of attention. They have equally important claims to policymakers' attention. They just go about their business and get things done through the regular order of the legislative process and rules and regulations. So I think sometimes we're going to have to be happy with that being our path forward, we can't always be the center of attention. There are a lot of things jockeying for policymakers' attention and for voters' attention. And yes, we think education is important, and yes, we think maybe uh, it should be uh, higher up in the uh, priorities of voters because we think the stakes are high. But getting to that point isn't what's required to get things done. You can get things done under other types of circumstances circumstances and advocates and all other sectors of the policy world do that as regular order of business. My guest today has been Charles Barone, Chief Policy Officer at Democrats for Education Reform and author of The Voters Have Spoken, But What Did They Say About Education, which is available now at educationnext.org. Charlie, thanks for being part of the podcast. Marty, as always, great talking to you. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to check out our archive and, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners find us.